The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn in your Bible or on your app to Matthew chapter 14, and we're going to start in verse 22 together. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, we have them for free, so just please ask an usher after service, so you can go back and see our folks in the hospitality room across the hall, and we'd be happy to give you a Bible for free. We want everyone that wants a Bible to have one. Uh, If you don't have any way to follow along as we read God's Word together, the verses will be on the screens tonight so that you can do that. We are continuing in our series, focusing in on the miracles of Jesus and what they teach us about our God. Though our main focus is to learn more about the character and nature of our Creator, we have also observed some profound insights into how we can and should relate to Him, as we've observed Jesus doing these miracles and then the responses of people uh, as that's happening. So it's been some, some deep, profound things thus far, and I don't expect anything different tonight as the Holy Spirit helps us to study God's Word. Let's read Matthew chapter 14 starting in verse 22. Ready? Here we go. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. This is just after he fed 5,000. Most people say what he's trying to do at this moment, the reason it seems like he's in a rush to kind of clear the area is uh, he didn't want a crowd to get stirred up at that point about messianic promise and a riot start before uh, his time to do what he was supposed to do. And so folks were getting really stoked. He just fed 5,000 people with a Hebrew Lunchable, and they're like, this is the guy, this is the guy. And so there's kind of a fervor rising. And so he broke that up because it wasn't time yet. So he tells his disciples, jump in the boat, get to the other side. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. Walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. Praise God for his word. Right out of the gate here, we see something amazing. We see this, this beautiful fact that God is relational. Verses 22, uh, he's shooing the crowd away. Verse 23 tells us, after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. We see here Jesus withdrawing to pray, right? So who do we have there? We have two members of the Trinitarian Godhead. We have Jesus the Son. We have God the Father in communication. Neither one of them really need anything, Jesus isn't bringing a list of needs to God the Father. He's not bringing a list of information to God the Father that perhaps God didn't know or have. So what's the point of this? They're simply enjoying relationship 
and one another's presence. That could be the only point of that interaction. Neither of them needed anything. There was A lot of the reasons we communicate, they have no need for. They just wanted to be with each other. I, I truly and sincerely hope that you have some relationships in your life that can help you understand at least a reflection of the beauty of this. And if you don't, my encouragement to you would be to assess why and make an effect to change it. The kind of relationship I'm referring to is the kind where if you don't talk to or spend time with somebody, it really bothers you. If you don't get to be around them, hear them laugh, or, or just share your life with them and, and hear about theirs, uh, you feel as if something is missing. I can tell you one type of person that struggles with this, because I am this person. Those of us who are very duty-oriented and struggle to rest or relax because in our minds we could be actually accomplishing something, right? Fingers in the air. We tend not to be very good at delighting in the simple gift of relationships. I personally relate to God much more as king than father, if I really assess myself. What I want to know from him is, like, what are my orders, and I want to execute those like a loyal soldier. That's the primary way I come to God. And he's got to shape that and mold that and make that more relational because that's what he desires. I don't get to come to God however I want, and I don't get to just say, this is the way I am, right? Uh, I'm submitted to the process of being formed into the image of Christ, and I want to be more like him. Many of us are much more like Martha than Mary. If you're not familiar with that story, there were two women in a room with Jesus. One was sitting at Jesus' feet, enjoying the privilege of being near him. And the other, Martha, was scurrying around trying to accomplish all of the tasks that she thought his presence demanded. Jesus said Mary, the one sitting at his feet, just enjoying his presence, had the right idea. And his instruction to Mary was basically, this is a Pastor Vince paraphrase, you need to chill out. And a lot of times that's what we need to do. Some of us just need to chill out. Some of us need to realize God desires simply presence and relationship and communication for its sake, not to be accomplishing some other goal or task. I, I will say that one way God has graciously shaped me in this is by giving me a family. Uh, instead of seeing time with them as another task that must be accomplished, he's formed and is forming my heart so that being with them is one of the rewards of finishing my other tasks. Just the thought of getting done with work and getting home to them, uh, to listen to Max laugh and run around the house like a banshee and listen to Lucy's story about this art and craft and everything she's doing and just talk to Natalie about the day. This is something that is, is a privilege to look forward to. That's a reward, not, not a task. And sometimes like those relational gifts end up being for us. Sometimes you know, a, a good godly dad will think, okay, I've got to put in time with the family because that's what God requires. How sad right? That it can get that way. It can be that way. Um, God doesn't want our relationship with him to be task-oriented. He simply desires our presence and wants us to desire his. I hope that's incredibly good news for you. I hope that God wants to relate to you like that. No matter where you are on relating to him like that, the very fact that that's what he desires puts us in a good spot. We are a privileged people, uh, much to be thankful for in regards to that. This whole idea, 
I can anticipate some of you and, and the pushback. This is not a mere question of being introverted or extroverted. I understand there's social and psychological sciences that would say, listen, some people are just going to be energized and flourish better in a situation with people. Some people do better off by themselves. I, I admit that that is a reality and personality is a factor. But let me just submit to you that no matter where you are on that spectrum, the truth is we were created in God's image and thus made to both give and receive in the context of real relationships. We don't get to just say, well, I'm an introvert and this is, I'm best served and I do best if I'm off by myself. I would to some degree, because you're made in the image of God, I would challenge to what degree you actually believe that assertion. Maybe you overbelieve that. But in addition to that, it's not just about you. God's called you as someone that bears his image to be in real relationship with other people because that's not just, we're not just looking for a potential benefit for you in those interactions, but also what you bring to the table and being a blessing to those other people. Praise God. All the introverts said, Amen. I heard you. It was out there somewhere. Yay! Jesus really shows us through this, and many other times when he pulls away off by himself to just be with the Father, he shows us that God is this way. He is not an angry totalitarian that so many imagine, but he is incredibly loving, and he is highly relational and totally personal in his character. We see this in how often Jesus withdraws from the work of ministry just to spend time with our Father. And I think this is a struggle for many of us that are committed to the work of the ministry, the, the furthering of God's kingdom, the spreading of his gospel. We very, very quickly get pulled into this trap where doing things for God becomes a substitute for being with God. It's so easy and it's so tricky. Our mind is so quick to justify, but I'm doing all this stuff for God and not understanding those things may be necessary and a part of what it means for us to serve Jesus but God desires something in addition. He doesn't just want us to be little, little task completers for him. He's a good father that wants us to be near him and take the time to do that. And he doesn't want that for us to be a burden. He wants us to want that time as much as he does. Does that make sense? What good news? Even if we're not doing a good job at it, it's, it's really good news. This leads us to a question we have often asked, but we must continue to consider is prayer and spending time alone with God through his word a duty or a delight for you? We need to ask ourselves that. And we need to realize that seasons of life can, can affect that. This isn't something that we just reach this static place of achievement. Okay, I've got it. Now I delight in God. There's going to be a constant pull and push trying to get you out of that. The struggles, the, 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 the challenges of life. Spiritual enemies, all of it, is always going to try to make the beauty of a privileged relationship with God somehow a burden and a task. So that's going to be something we have to actively resist by the grace of God and the power of his spirit. And one way we can do that is by asking ourselves the question, what does it look like for me right now to spend time in God's word, to spend time in prayer, to be with him? Do I look forward to that? Do I run to that anxiously or do I kind of slough over to it like I'm about to do homework? right? There's a difference, and, and that, that difference is, is huge. If you know it is more like a task than a privilege for you right now to spend time with the Lord, don't be condemned. It's absolutely the last response that he would want. What we should do is ask for God to form and shape 
us by the power of his spirit so that we can delight in his glorious invitation to have a real relationship with him. God is going to have to help us do this. Our bend is going to be for that thing to become a task and a duty. But by the grace of God and the power of his spirit, it can stay something that is a time of refreshing and a time of, of just privileged joy in the presence of God. That's his desire for it. So at the bare minimum, hopefully what we see here is, is where our desire should be for it. And if, if there needs to be correction, we're going to trust God's grace to help us get there. This is not very little, if anything, of what we do in, in pertain, pertaining to obeying the Lord is, is going to be, well, okay, I see that, and maybe I'm not doing that, so now I'm going to white-knuckle it, and I'm going to decide and make it happen. You're just adding another task. Don't do it that way, friend. Bow down before the master. Acknowledge your need and your inability to do this yourself. Receive his grace and help. And enjoy him because he enjoys you. I hope that's a blessing to you. Verse 26 shows us how fear can distort our vision. Here's what it says. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Uh, They're watching too much sci-fi channel, I guess, or or seeing ghosts when the Lord Jesus is on the sea. Uh, These guys, and and, in other accounts, this this account is recorded uh, in a couple other of the Gospels, and it gives a little more clarity into how hard these guys were fighting. It says that they were exhausted at the oars, trying to fight against this wind and this storm that had come up. Sea of Galilee is very... It's known for these pop-up storms kind of come out of nowhere and put you in a bad place if you're on a boat. So they'd been fighting the storm all night. They were tired and probably already scared by the time Jesus came to help them. They're exhausted. They're already scared. Here comes Jesus. When we let fear seize our hearts, we have an unfortunate tendency to lose sight of where our help comes from. Or we can even totally miss when God is trying to help us. Here comes Jesus coming to help, and what are these guys' reaction? They're so geeked out and freaked out already, tired, exhausted, afraid of what's going on around them. Here comes Jesus. Their first, do you realize it's kind of funny and ridiculous? Their first reaction is not, hey, we've been following this guy that heals people and feeds 5,000 people with a couple of loaves of bread and some fish. He's our guy. We've been with him for a long time now. There's something out on the water. It's a ghost, right? Like that's, that's kind of a, a funny first assertion when you roll with Jesus all the time. Wouldn't you think, well, should, maybe it's him. Let's look again. You know, but they don't because they're freaked out. Fear has seized their heart, and it begins, to, it begins to mess with their vision, mess with even the way they perceive things, and that's a real problem. So sometimes it, it messes up our ability to perceive God helping us, or, or we just totally miss when God is trying to help us, we're overcome with fear, and God may be doing all that we should be praying for. He's, he's coming to the rescue, and yet we reject it, run from it, hide from it, or end up scared about what he's trying to do to help us. We just add that to the mix of the fear and get pushed down even further into that darkness. I, I saw a video this week of a, a black bear that got its head stuck in a bucket, and I don't mean like a little bit stuck, this thing somehow shoved his head so hard in there, like it was like a, a rigid edge around the top of the bucket. He was in there. And so these guys, and based on their apparel, I'm going to say we're probably country folk, a little hillbilly. I can say that because those are my people. 
but uh, there's a lot of camo and, and cut off uh, t-shirts. So uh, I think I saw a fish hook on one of the hats. So these guys were definitely country folks, the, but they need to get all the credit because there's a lot of possible reactions to seeing a bear. This thing's just like running around, bumping into stuff, falling off of stuff because it can't see. Its head is totally covered in this bucket. These guys run over and start like grabbing this thing by the bucket, right? And I don't know if you know about bears, but these bears have claws, man. If that thing reaches up and grabs your arm, you could not get that arm back. Like it could be over for you in the arm department, right? So they're taking a huge risk to rescue this black bear that's got his head stuck in a bucket. And so they, they're, they're wrestling with him, fighting with him, and, and you know, they got to kind of chase him, and they would grab the bucket, and this bear, as soon as it felt somebody on there, it was going buck wild. I mean, trying to shake them off, push away from them. It, it kept running from them. You know, they'd kind of run up alongside and try to catch it, and he would dart the other way. His head is in the bucket. Everything's dark. He has no idea that what he's perceiving is another threat is somebody really come and try to help him. Now, the point of the story is we do that oftentimes with God. A lot of times you got your head in a bucket. Here he comes trying to love you and help you and come alongside you, and you're running from him, pushing off against him, making it hard for him to help you. Uh, I know that's the point of the story, and I wanted to say that because most of you are just going, well, what happened to the bear in the bucket? Good news. Five guys tackled the bear, held it down, and they had to actually like hacksaw the bucket and got it off of his head. So happy ending. Yay, the bear's free. Okay. The bottom line is don't be that black bear. Don't get, don't get so blinded by, by fear and, and just focusing in on the negative and the things that you're, you're upset or scared about, that when God does come to help, you end up calling him a ghost or trying to run from him or all the, the kind of crazy things we end up doing when fear seizes our hearts. We were given a great hope uh, in the book of 1 John, chapter 4. It says that perfect love casts out fear. Jesus is the embodiment of that perfect love. And so um, if we walk in love and walk next to the master we will be much less prone to being overcome with fear, which is a lot of what this passage has to do with, is a lot of why I believe Jesus performed this miracle uh, and why God himself had it be recorded in the scriptures so that we could see the effect fear has on us and why really, if Jesus is involved, fear is really kind of foolish. If Jesus is involved, fear is foolish. The next thing I think we can see from this in learning about God and how we relate to him is that Jesus is our ever-present help in time of need. Let me read you Psalm 46, verse 1. This miracle account gives some strength and, and kind of buttresses this idea that is communicated in Psalm 46, verse 1. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. For some of us, we've not yet even believed that Jesus is present and that he's there to help. For so many people, we see Jesus as an adversary for all kinds of weird reasons. Another, another totalitarian to try to appease, as opposed to somebody that's on our team and has proven it by dying in our place for our sins, by going all the way to prove, I'm for you and I'm with you and I love you, and if you'll trust me, I'll help you. We oftentimes don't treat him like that. Notice when Jesus says, notice what he says when he comes to them. He doesn't say, hey guys, I, I saw the forecast back on land and the storm is almost over, so don't worry. He doesn't say, 
come on, guys, you can do it, does he? What does he say? He says plainly, it is I. Do not be afraid. This harmonizes with all of the rest of the scriptures. Several commentators say that this, the it is I here could just as easily be translated, I am. Does that ring a bell? All the way back to the way God revealed himself in the Old Testament, over and over again, as the people of God were freaking out about provision, enemies, all the stuff, over and over again, he would say to them, I am. That's a big, bold statement. Nothing else needs to be said. I am. Always have been, always will be, and I am the one. That's what God's saying when he says that. And what, so what does Jesus appeal to when they're freaking out, calling him a ghost? They're exhausted, they're tired, they're scared, the storm's raging. He doesn't appeal to them, say, come on, I know you guys can do it. You guys have strong backs, keep rowing, you'll make it, right? He didn't say, don't worry, you've been here before, the storm will pass, just, just stick it in there. You can make it. He says, it is I. I'm here. The master's here. So don't be afraid. Jesus is our ever-present help in time of need. Too often, when trouble comes, when difficulty comes, Jesus is the last place we look. First we assess, we, okay, trouble comes, so then we, we bust out all our resources and we start assessing mentally, okay, what can I do? Can I handle this? Can I solve this problem? I could do this or this or this. Oftentimes we exhaust all the options and we end up in, in, in a pile of tears and then finally we say, oh, oh yeah, Jesus, he loves me and he'll help me. <laughs> we could have avoided a lot of trouble in, in those tears and brought glory to God by trusting him at the front of it. So just rest in the fact, and, and please take courage in the fact that Jesus' response to these guys in the midst of this, this trembling and fear was, it is I. I'm here. And because I'm here, don't be afraid. That is the most prevalent command you will find throughout all of the scriptures. As far as God instructing his people over and over again, he will say, do not fear either because I am God or because I am with you. God wants you to be completely free of fear for two reasons. One, because he's God. And when he says, I am, and if he describes himself the way he's revealed himself to us, is he is not some lesser God. He is not some half God, some demigod. He is the God, the creator God, the one that spoke before the foundations of the earth. Everything, there was nothing, and now everything that is, is because of him speaking his words, and he sustains it by the power of his might. That God says, don't fear, because that's me, and because I'm with you. I hope you'll cling to that, friend. I hope that will come to your mind and your heart the next time you're tempted to fear, the next time you're tempted to despair. Your God is mighty and well-able, and he's promised to be with you. Praise God for that. The next thing I think we can draw from this, again, is it reveals something to us about God, but also about what he expects of us, is that God wants you to get out of the boat. Sometimes it can be ambiguous in this story about, you know, the, is this Peter's idea or is it Jesus' idea? Clearly, I believe God wants you to get out of the boat. Many people, when they read this story, they, they focus in on and they like to give Peter a hard time for sinking. But I think we should acknowledge 
this simple fact, at least that brother got out of the boat. If Peter can be counted on for anything, it's typically not well thought out and rash decisions. In this case, however, he at least stopped and said, Lord, if it's you, bid me come. And to some degree, you know, Peter's actions don't always lend you to coming to the conclusion that he was the smartest in a technical sense of all of the disciples that Jesus chose. And yet, I would just submit this idea to you, though he was clearly not the smartest and sometimes prone to rashness and quick, uh, sometimes foolish behavior, Jesus chose him as the leader of the disciples. So I'll just set that at your feet. You can do with that what you will. Jesus, I believe, was blessed by the fact that Peter at least got out of the boat. So many people live paralyzed by the fear of failure, and so they try to insulate their life from any risk without realizing they are also removing the potential for growth. By insulating their life from any risk, because they fear so much failing, they don't realize they're also blocking out the potential for growth. We really can learn something from Peter here. First of all, what he says, it really echoes something that Ruth of old declared to Naomi when she told her, where you go, I'm going to go. There was, and she went on so far as to say, let it go really bad for me. She's talking in real serious terms. Let it go really bad for me. If what I'm saying I'm going to do, I don't do. Where you go, I'm going to go. What do we see in the heart of Peter here? Peter's obviously reasoning, Lord, if you're in it, I'll come out of this boat. If it's you, I'm coming. Even though stepping out of a boat in the middle of a storm seems insane, right? Can we acknowledge that? Nothing about that seems right. If there wasn't a storm stepping out of the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, doesn't seem like the best of all given options, right? This seems insane. Peter is clearly saying, if you say it's okay, Jesus, I trust you. If that's you there and you bid me come, I'm hopping the side of this thing and I'm coming out there because of you, because I trust you, because you've proven that if you'll call me to come, that I'll be okay if I do it. I trust you because you've proven you're trustworthy. Friends, we are prone to a myriad of justifications we use as an excuse for our lack of faith. Sometimes it flies under the banner of wisdom. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just trying to use wisdom. No, sometimes what you're doing is insulating your life from any potential risk. You're taking out any potential for you to do something in faith that you wouldn't otherwise do if you didn't have faith, and thus stunting the ability for God to work in you what he's trying to work in you, with his, which is growth and maturity by the power of his spirit. We having fun? I'm having fun. <laughs> it often goes that way, right? That I'm having fun and you're not. Praise God. The word of God is good. It's helping us. There are, there are so many ways that Jesus has already called us out of our comfortable little safe places. In other words, our metaphorical boats. And we often believe that there's a possibility we may sink. We, sometimes, sometimes what we'll say is, some of you realize Jesus has called you out of your boat. Some of you don't even realize you have a boat. Some of you know you do, but you're like, you know what? 
nobody's called me on it yet, so I'm going to chill out right here. So we're, we're in a bunch of different places, and I understand that. But, but something that we all tend to share is this tendency to think, if it's possible, when I come up out of this boat, that I might sink, our reasoning is, well, then it's better to stay. If there's any potential for failure, that fear of failure, that anxiety about the potential for failure will keep us in the boat. The question is, is that the right assertion? Is that the right conclusion? Is it better to stay put if there's a possibility to sink? Jesus has called us out of our comfortable little safe places, and we see God deal with his people this way throughout the scriptures. This is not this situation with Peter is, is an echo of, of the way God has dealt with his people throughout the entirety of redemptive history. We go back to the father of our faith, Abraham. What, what did God say to him? The, the, they first start talking. God's big opening with Abraham is, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pull up your family, pull up your tents, get all of your stuff, and I want you to start walking, and then I'm going to show you where I'm going to take you. What? Talk about coming up out of the boat. He was settled. His tents were settled. He was near other people that he knew. There was safety and security there. Here's what God says to him. And most of us would not have this if we're just being honest. If God said to us, I want you, here, I'm going to give you this much instruction. I want you to start moving. Pick up all your stuff and start going. And as you trust me that far, then I'm going to give you more instructions. You're like, i got to pray on that. <laughs> right? Most of us would not have that kind of instruction. This is part of why Abraham is the father of our faith, right? He was called righteous because of his belief in God. He trusted God completely, and so he took that bet. Started walking. What happened? Was God faithful? Did God forget about him? No, absolutely. God stuck with him. Did show him where he was taking him. Stayed with him. Gave him a son of promise, which is, kicks off the entirety of the redemptive history that goes on through Genesis and the rest. Moses comes to mind, right? God calls Moses... And, and let's, hold on a second, I'm, I'm hoping you're, you're not doing this. Sometimes you'll think, well, Abraham, yeah, I mean, Abraham's the father of our faith, that guy, was, that guy was a faith giant, yeah, sure, I'm sure he did trust God. Or then, I'm about to talk to you about Moses, you might say, yeah, Moses, Moses is the guy with the staff, man, he's like challenging Pharaoh and turning rivers into blood, like, that's Moses, big faith guy, I don't see myself in that league, I don't really relate to that. You need to see the intentionality of God and who he chose to do what he did to accomplish his redemptive purposes in the earth. Abraham was not a great guy. He was a liar, first and foremost, riddled with sins and, and other failures along the way. This is not a perfect guy that God said, okay, now I can do something with you because you're perfect. Moses, his whole story with God dealing with him kicks off with him murdering somebody, right? Not premium material, uh, that you think God is starting to work with there. So th these, these people are not somehow faith giants that are out of your league, and thus the way they obeyed God can't relate to you. So how did God deal with Moses? Moses, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, most powerful ruler in the world, and you're going to demand of him that he lets all of the slave laborers go that he's using to build all of his cities and his storehouses and his whatever he's doing. Okay, so... They, they tussle about that a little bit. He ends up going that far. Trust God in that. God shows up. Incredible miracles. And then it comes to the end, and Pharaoh lets them go, and then changes his mind. And that brings Moses and all of the people of God, estimates vary, but a whole lot of people, up to the edge of the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army at their back, rushing in, chariots, swords ablazing, ready to do damage. 
And here they are up against this body of water. A detail that oftentimes people miss is that God commands Moses to start moving towards that water and to get all those people to start moving towards that water, and then he would split the sea. You want to talk about walking by faith? Walk towards that body of water, and then I'm going to split it because I want to see if you'll trust me. This, this situation with Peter coming out of this boat is not the first time God's dealt with a man this way. So what, what do we see from that? God may deal with you this way. God may give you just enough details to trust him, but not enough for you to feel like you have your cuddly security blanket on and everything's figured out. He may want you to reach by faith for peace that transcends understanding when you don't have all the details. It's good. I heard a half a amen on that. That was a good one. I'll amen myself. All right. So God's dealt with his people this way, and those are just a couple examples. God, faith pleases God. It is impossible to please God without faith. And this is part of what that looks like. How do you build your faith if God never gives you an opportunity to trust him? If he just downloaded the entirety of what he knows about your life right now, which is what most of you want. Most of you believe that's what you want. God, give me a video that I can play back and I can know all the rest of my future so that I'm never surprised. You think you want that. First of all, your brain would probably melt and fall out your ears. You couldn't handle it. A. B, you'd have no need for faith. We are so prone to self-reliance without having that. Imagine God gave you that. The, the pride and self-reliance would eat you alive. God is gracious and merciful in that he is the lamp to our feet, the light to our path. His word guides us, and he shows us just enough that we can keep following him faithfully. But not so much that we would abandon him or, or decide that we got this under control now. We don't need you. Each and every one of us has been called by Jesus to come, just like Peter was, to come into a situation where you will undoubtedly fail without him. Is that not what we see here? When he bids Peter come up out of that boat, what chance does Peter have if Jesus isn't in the picture? It's zero. <laughs> he's just going to hit the bottom, unless he's a good swimmer. But the clothes they wore back then, I can't imagine would have helped for swimming. So it would have been a bad deal. He had no chance. He's undoubtedly going to fail without Jesus. And here's the premise I'm giving you. I'm about to read you. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. And I believe this is Jesus' call to you to come, just like he called Peter to come up out of that boat. He's calling you to come. Come into this mission, and you will undoubtedly fail at it without him. Here's what he says to all of us. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And here's the kicker. It lines up with exactly what we're talking about. And lo... I am with you even to the end of the age. Why did Jesus say that when he gave us the Great Commission? He could have just stopped it, given us instructions. He said, lo, I am with you even to the end of the age because he had to give us the assurance that we were going to have his help because what he just asked of us is as impossible as walking on water without him. To go all the way to the ends of the earth, to take this gospel to everybody, to go and make disciples. I'm not just talking about converts. I'm not just talking about us buying all the radio stations and, and getting the gospel to people's ears. 
his command is not just for us to make converts or let everyone hear the gospel. It's to go and make disciples of them, to teach them to observe and to obey all that Jesus commanded. This is an incredibly huge, monumental, and impossible task without the help of Christ, which is why he doesn't give it to us without saying, lo, because he gets it. If, if you actually get what the Great Commission is commanding of you, your jaw will be dropped, your eyes will be wide, and you will be tempted to fear that you're going to fail at it. Which is why immediately he comes behind and says, but remember, I am with you all the way to the end of the age. I know I'm asking something that you can't do on your own, but I got you. Come up out of your boat, little one. Come on. Trust me. Failure is possible. But trust me, I'm here. That call goes to all of us. You've all been called up out of your comfort zone. You've all been called up out of your boat. The question is, what are you going to do with it? You going to be one of the 11 that huddle in the back, hoping for the best? Or are you going to say to Jesus, if you bid me come, I will come. Are you going to echo Isaiah when he encountered the glory of the Lord in chapter 6? And he's undone. By his sin and the sin of his people. And his response is, as God asks, who's going to go? Who's going to spread this message of hope? And he says, here I am. Send me. His task was given to him that he was going to preach for the rest of his life. And very few, if anybody, was even going to listen to him. And he still said, here I am. Send me. If that's your purpose, oh God, I trust you. If you bid me come. Whatever that means, if you bid me come, I'm coming. If you're there, I'm there. I trust you. Now, you might be saying, you might be thinking, I, I hope you're wrestling with this. I hope you're dealing with the implications. You might be saying, yeah, but what if I get out of the boat and I falter like Peter did? What if I do what you're saying? And okay, by faith, I take that step and I go up out of the boat. But what if what happened to Peter happens to me? What if I falter? What if I do get distracted? Because I've, I've done that before. Anybody? Anybody relate to that? Like I've tried and it didn't work or it didn't go good or I, went, I did really good for a long time, but then what if I falter? What if I fall short? What if I embarrass myself? What if I embarrass Jesus? And here's my answer to you, friend. If Jesus is involved, if Jesus is involved, fear of failure is completely irrational. If Jesus is involved, fear of failure is completely irrational. Let me qualify that. I'm not saying this in some fanciful, hopeful way. We, we have proof here in the way Jesus deals with Peter. Look at how Jesus responds to Peter. Let's look at this together. I'm going to start in verse 28. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. Peter got out of the boat, and he walked on the water, and he came towards Jesus. He didn't jump off the boat and fall immediately, did he? He, he jumped out of the boat, and this brother walked on water with the master. It says he came towards him. He made some progress. But seeing the wind, he became frightened took his eyes off Jesus, started to look around. What happens then? And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. This is what's important. What are we answering right now? Why am I here? 
I'm answering the objection that what if I do step out of the boat in faith and what if I fail? What if I do what you're saying? What if by faith I go out and I begin to evangelize? I begin to share the gospel. I begin in my workplace to, to, to by the power of the Spirit of God, live in such a way and speak in such a way that curiosity about the goodness of my king would be conjured in those that I come in contact with. What if I do that? But then I, I come in one day and I have a bad attitude or I, I, I speak with language that doesn't represent King Jesus or what if I fail or falter in the way? We're answering that objection that undoubtedly, if you're actually processing what I'm calling you to, what these scriptures are calling you to, undoubtedly this, this thought is hitting your mind. What if I get out of the boat and falter like Peter did? How did Jesus deal with Peter? Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him. Immediately, as Peter began to falter, as Peter began to fail, as Peter looked to the left and to the right, got distracted by what he was afraid of and began to fall, he cried out to Jesus, and what did Jesus do? Did Jesus stand there a minute and say, I'm going to teach you a lesson. I'm going to let you get your head underwater, and, get, and, and, and then you'll learn something, and maybe next time you won't doubt me. Is that what he did? Did he give it a few minutes? Did he let a couple waves wash over him so he realized the gravity of the situation? No. When Peter called out to Jesus, immediately he stretched out his hand and he helped him. How does that answer the problem from before? Dear friend, many of you struggle to get out of your metaphorical boat, whatever that means for you in your life, to be a part of God's mission of making disciples in the earth. There's different objections and there's different roadblocks for each of you, and I realize that, but whatever that is, whatever the, the edge of that boat looks like for you that you're, you're you want so bad to jump over that thing, but you're, you're plagued by this idea. But what if I do and I sink? Friend, Jesus called out to Peter and immediately he helped him. Here's, here's what, I'm going to guarantee you something. You jump out of the boat, you obey God like this, you move forward in faith without a doubt because you are imperfect and because you are not Jesus himself, you will fail and falter at some point. But the, point, the question is then what will you do? Will you call out to Jesus and will you experience his merciful faithfulness as he reaches out to you and helps you in the midst of that and says, come on, let's keep going? Fear of failure is irrational if Jesus is involved because he's not going to let you go under. Call out to him. He'll be merciful. He'll help you. It's not on you. Do you get that? This isn't about you, your gift set, your skill set, what you can accomplish. It's it's, the question is, is Jesus worthy to be trusted? Has he proven that if I'm willing to walk by faith, get out of my little boat, that he'll be with me and that he'll help me when invariably I don't do a perfect job at this? I believe he will. I hope you believe it too. Most people read this uh, response from Jesus in kind of a mad voice when he says, you have little faith, why did you doubt? But this really is such a picture of the tender mercy of Christ. First of all, I would call your attention to Jesus reaching immediately. That doesn't seem to be the reaction of somebody that's, that's ticked off in the moment, disappointed. Immediately, as soon as Peter calls out, Jesus reaches for him and pulls him up. Immediately, he stretched out his hand. Uh, you, this, this verbiage, you of little faith... In the original language, it's almost like a name. Like, it says here, you of little faith, but if you look at the way it's really, it really is, it's, it's almost like Jesus called him little, 
little faith, why did you doubt? Almost, almost like a pet name. And if, if you know anybody that is from a Spanish-speaking home or, or you've spent time in other countries, they have this term of endearment for their sons. And I'll, I'll say it to Max sometimes. I think it's just, they, they call their sons mijo, mijo. And it's so sweet, just like the way it comes off the tongue when they speak it. If you see a Mexican or a Spanish father speak it to his son, uh, or oftentimes it's the mama, many times, when, when she'll call her son mijo, there's such a sweetness to it. You have to be close. You, you walk out on the street and call some dude mijo, you're probably going to get in a fight. It's, it's a term of endearment, and there's got to be like, a lot of relationship there. So don't, don't take this and think you're saying something nice. You probably shouldn't use it. But sometimes I'll, 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 say, I'll say, Max, come here, mijo. Get in, come here, sit in dad's lap. And... And what, it's, it's, what that really translates as, it's slang, but it's like my son, mijo. And I, you may not have experienced somebody saying that or like seen the affection of it before, so maybe it doesn't translate for you as well. Just for me, when I see Jesus speaking to Peter about his, his little faith in this moment, and why did you doubt? I, I see him saying it like I've seen a father or a mother say to their son, mijo, why did you doubt? Not you of little faith, don't you read, have you ever read it sometimes, or been, it's been preached that way, like, Jesus is just so irate at this moment. It, it doesn't line up, though, with the rest of the action. If, if that was like, if that's how Jesus was, I would have imagined he'd let Peter float around a little while, or go under, or whatever, like punishment. There doesn't seem to be any punishment in this. I don't see Jesus as angry here. I see him reach immediately for this son he loves, and I can see a duality in Jesus' response. I'm sure, to some degree, he is proud of this disciple that he's trained, that this dude just jumped out of a boat in the middle of the storm because he trusted him enough to do that. And yet I'm sure there is also a bit of disappointment at the fact that though he got out, got on the water and made it some distance, the storm was able to distract him. But I don't see this angry, accusational uh, reaction from Jesus. It doesn't, that doesn't fit with the way the rest of it looks. I believe Jesus was, was proud of Peter, but also did want him to understand, even in asking that question, that doubt was the issue. Maybe Peter wasn't sure about that right now, but he's saying, Peter, your faith was little here. Why did you doubt? That's why you sunk. It wasn't because I stopped being faithful. It wasn't because some other thing changed. Your eyes got distracted and you doubted. That's, that's why you started to sink. Now, doubt here, this, this word doubt, it, it literally means double-minded. It means double-minded. And this is the tendency that so often stops us from walking by faith and gaining any momentum in our lives and in our mission for Jesus. Double-mindedness. The book of James says a double-minded man should not expect to receive anything from the Lord because he's unstable in all of his ways. This idea of doubt is communicated when, when he says, Peter, why did you doubt? It's this... In that word is this idea of double-mindedness. And here's, here's my question to you. What would you say if, if you stepped outside today after we've gathered and, and one of your friends is out there and they say to you, okay, I'm going to run down the road. It's like a, you know, three-quarters of a mile down to Kroger and go get some stuff. And you're like, okay, I, you know, I wouldn't run in this heat, but, you know, more power to you, right? So off they go, but they take off running. They stop at the edge of the parking lot, turn around, and run hard as they can to the other edge of the parking lot, turn around, run as hard as they can to the other edge of the parking lot, turn around, run back, and you watch them do that for a half hour until they are totally covered in sweat, exhausted, 
They fall down, crumple in the middle of the parking lot, start crying and screaming, and they're so confused, angry, and upset because they haven't made it to Kroger yet. What would you say to them? I mean, hopefully you'd hand them some water and then something to the effect of, hey, you okay? Right? Like, what's my point here? That something's wrong. <laughs> Something isn't connecting. There's a bit of confusion there. You should not be confused that you haven't made it to Kroger because you've been running one way and then running the other way for a half hour. And yet here you find yourself exhausted and frustrated because you haven't reached your destination. That's what double-mindedness looks like. And many of you don't even realize part of why you're exhausted and frustrated is because you're running hard in one direction and then something happens that spooks you or you just like, ah, I haven't been any farther than this before so I'm going to stop and you start running back the exact opposite way. And you stay in this little comfort zone. It's almost like running back and forth, stern to bow in a boat and thinking, why am I not getting anywhere? Your double-mindedness is nullifying your effectiveness. It's keeping you frustrated and it's a miserable existence. Doubt, man. Some of these doubts need to be put to bed and put to death. We need to decide some things by faith. Things like, no matter what, I'm going to serve God. No matter what, if Jesus goes, I'll go. No matter what may happen, me and my house are going to serve the Lord. No matter what may come, I'm going to be with Jesus. Doesn't matter how many times I might fall down or fail. Doesn't matter how many distractions try to come and pull me to the right and to the left. At the end of it all, I'm going to serve Jesus. I'm going to head in one direction for a long time for the rest of my life, long obedience in the same direction. I'm not saying I'm going to make as much progress every day as I do the day before. Sometimes I might stop dead in my tracks and struggle. It might be difficult, but what I'm not going to do is turn around and run away. What I'm not going to do is head way off on some contrary trail, way outside of God's will, doing nothing to do with what he's made clear as his will for me. I'm not doing any of that. I know I'm going to face difficulty. I know I'm going to face trial. And I may actually multiply for myself difficulties because if I actually decide with that kind of single-minded fierceness that I'm going to serve God no matter what, I'm probably going to put hell on notice and they're going to want to come get involved in trying to trip me up. But guess what? I might be pressed, but I won't be crushed. Guess what? There might be some enemies coming against me, but absolutely, 100%, it's always true. They're not fighting me. They're going to be fighting the one who goes before me, and that means they lose. Because Jesus is involved. Fear is irrational. Fear of failure is irrational. Are you saying Jesus makes me a super person? No! I'm saying he's with you. And be, even though you're not a super person, because he's with you, you'll make it. And if you start to drown, you start to fall, you start to slip, if you'll cry out to him in humility... He won't hesitate. He'll reach immediately. He'll be faithful to you and he'll help you. Man, I hope that's good news to somebody today. I know some of you have lived in a lot. You've been running in some parking lots. And you found yourself crumpled in the middle, sweaty, exhausted, and frustrated. I'd like to see some of you pick a path that leads toward obedience to God. And even if you're not running as hard as you can, you're at least moving in the right direction, trusting him by faith. No more double-mindedness, friends. By God's grace. 
Some of you are in a boat of old sinful behaviors, and you're afraid if you really commit to living for Jesus, you may not succeed. Some of you have gotten really good at doing things your way, and you know it works. With enough, enough manipulation and enough kind of shucking and jiving, you can get the job done. You at least know that you can get that far. And for some of you, it's old sinful behaviors that's your boat of comfort. And you're afraid if you really commit, you jump out of that thing, you live for Jesus, you may not succeed. Friend, I just want to say to you, if that's you today, your boat that you think gives you control is actually a jail cell holding you back from the freedom and joy that you were created for. Obedience to God. You, you may feel less in control by coming up out of that boat, but you're going to actually be free for the first time in your life. And if you can trust Jesus, you may trip, but you won't stay down. He'll help you. You may falter. Most likely you will. But Jesus is merciful and faithful. Can you trust that, friend? I want to just zero in on verse 33 as we finish. Uh, I'll start in 32. When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. This is the first definite, clear assertion we see of them calling him God's son. This event... Sealed the deal for them. I guess the feeding 5,000 and all of the healings and the other stuff, they were like, well, maybe it seems like it. This was the deal sealer. You are the son of God. They were, they were real confident at this point. And I think many times what we think caused that is Jesus walking on water. And I'm not saying that's not part of the deal because that's a pretty extraordinary miracle for Someone to surf without a surfboard, right? Like, that's a big deal. Uh, however, wrapped up into this and a part of why I believe these guys' eyes were opened and they were now able to fully, confidently make the claim that he is for sure God's son is not just the fact that Jesus came out to them in the middle of this sea, walking on the water, but it was, the, it was them watching this interaction between Jesus and Peter. Because they've been awaiting a Messiah that was going to come and save them. And they have an idea about the provision and the mercy and, and the love of God. It's all type and shadow. They haven't seen the fullness of it yet. They haven't seen the beauty of the cross and the, and the resurrection unfold. But they have this idea <coughs> about the character of God. And, and what they saw here, yes, Jesus walked in the water. And yes, that's an extraordinary miracle. Here's what they also saw. They saw the fact that Peter could not do it on his own. That he wasn't going to make it. And that Jesus stepped in and made the difference. The mercy and the love and the kindness of God was displayed in the way Jesus deals with Peter here. And in so doing, this again points forward to Jesus' ultimate purpose. This miracle wasn't just about Jesus coming out on the water and rescuing these guys in the middle of the storm. It was about Peter coming up out of that boat, doing something that would absolutely be impossible without Jesus being in the picture. Right? Do we agree on that? Walking on water does not go good for you. And look, I, I, I saw the video of the monk running on water, okay? There's wooden boards in there that he's running on. If you haven't seen the video, you can go look for it. We do not have a second Jesus, some dude in, you know, Tibet, all right? So that, that whole thing, 
He's still a baller because he's like running on little planks in the middle of a pond, and that's, I could not do that under any circumstance uh, to save my life. However, uh, he did not walk on water. Jesus holds the title for that. Him and Peter are the only ones we know of uh, that have actually walked on water. It's a miraculous thing, but what we see, and, and part of what reveals that this is the Son of God, this is the way to the Messiah, this is the, the Redeemer, the, the Savior that's come, is Peter's in a situation that absolutely he's going to fail and not make it if Jesus isn't involved. Friends, that sounds a lot like you and me in regards to our sin. We are in big trouble if Jesus isn't involved. But because he's there and because he's willing to reach to us in mercy and because he's willing even in the midst of our frailty and failures to come and seek us and pull us up out of the trouble that oftentimes is self-imposed, these guys saw a glimpse of the character and the nature of God in this merciful act of Jesus. And the way he deals with Peter tenderly, reaches for him quickly, doesn't punish him, but loves him. Walking on water, no doubt, was part of what convinced them, this is the Son of God. But equally important, I believe, is what they witnessed about the kindness and the loving mercy of God and the way he dealt with Peter through this interaction. What does it say later in the scriptures, friend? What, what draws men unto God? It's his loving kindness that draws men to him. These guys saw reflection of the goodness and love and mercy of God in the way Jesus dealt with Peter in this situation. And this is part of what allowed them to say, you are, without a doubt, the Son of God. They begin to see a glimpse of this gospel that we hold so dearly, that we get to see the fullness of, right? And this, this is why we should be much more apt than Peter to jump out of a boat if Jesus said so, shouldn't we? Peter hadn't seen the cross yet, friends. Peter hadn't seen Jesus go and be slain like a thief and then rise from death three days later. He hadn't even got to see that yet. And this brother had the gumption to jump up out of that boat and trust that Jesus would be there. How much more, friends, when we've seen the totality of the gospel, how far the lengths God is willing to go to save us and to love us and to, sh to shower upon us his kindness and mercy. How is it that we struggle to step out of our metaphorical boats, whatever it is that's holding us back. He's worthy of our trust, friends. If there's any question, the gospel seals the deal. This account right here was enough for the disciples. Friends, my question to you is, is the Savior of the world going to the cross to pay the price for your sins and then rising from the grave just like he said he would? Is that enough for you to believe him when he says... I'm asking you to come follow me and serve me. I'm asking you to be a part of a redemptive mission that you absolutely will fail at without me. I'm asking you to come with me, and I'm going to be with you. And so every part of it that scares you, set that down and trust me. Will you do it? Is he worthy of that kind of allegiance and trust? Dear friend, I think he is. And I hope we can respond in that way with full conviction for all of our lives to the glory of God. May we be a people who delight in the privilege of relationship with God. May we be a people who are able to trust completely in Jesus, knowing we will need his help to make it. And may we live free of fear as we fix our eyes on our perfect Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. I thank you for this account. I thank you, Lord, for the perfection of your word. I thank you that all things that we needed to see and know, to understand, 
things that pertain to righteousness and godliness and following you. You've given us what we need. I thank you for all of the beauty in this story, in this account. I know there's more. There's no way we could speak of it all. But I thank you for what you've shown us tonight, Lord. I thank you for dealing us with us gently and mercifully by your Spirit. Lord, as I read this and I, I see this, these ideas of trusting you completely under any circumstance, it seems, it seems so foundational as if it's something I should have already grasped and completely figured out and been able to walk out faithfully. But I know I falter so often. I know it's very easy for me to get my eyes to the right, to the left, to look at the wind and the waves instead of fixing my eyes upon you. And so, Lord Jesus, we just ask right now, we sang a song at the beginning of this service. We prayed, Lord, in song and asked you for grace to trust you more. And so, Lord, we acknowledge our tendency to not trust you like we should, to be riddled with fear, to be overcome with anxiety because we don't understand all of the details. Or sometimes it's just, just plain old insecurities because we're too focused on what we can do or not. So God, we declare right now humbly that sometimes we don't trust you enough. Many times, God, we do not give you the, the faith and the trust that you have so clearly earned. You're worthy of it. So we ask for grace, God, to trust you more. We can't fix this. We can't just flip a switch. We can't just decide. But we want to walk in such a way that you would be honored and worshiped with how much we trust you. We want to be single-minded in our devotion to you, Lord. We don't want to run more laps, but we want to keep moving forward. Long obedience in the same direction. You said you want more obedience more than sacrifice. God, help us to decide that no matter what comes, for the rest of our existence, we are going to worship you. We are going to serve you. You are worthy of that. You are worthy of that kind of single-minded allegiance. We love you so much, Lord, and we need your grace to walk this out. We need your mercy. We need the strength and power that comes from the help of your Holy Spirit. Without you, Lord, we will sink beneath the waves, but with you, we know we can make it. Even if we trip and even if we falter, there is hope in you. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you reached quickly to Peter. I thank you for what that says to me, because I know sometimes I'm falling short many times. But thank you, Lord, for showing me that if I'll call to you, you'll reach to me quickly. You'll help me. That doesn't mean you won't chastise me. That doesn't mean you won't discipline me because you love me like a good father. But you will not let me drown. You will reach to me and you will help me. Because you are faithful and you are loving and you are merciful as much as you are just. Thank you that you're perfect in all your ways. Lord, we submit to you and we trust you. Help us to do it more. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.